This morning's reading comes from Psalm 133, a psalm of ascent of David. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. All right, well, good morning again. Um, Chris is out of town this morning, and so you are stuck with me. <laughs> Forgive me if I uh, do a little extra stretching this morning. My, uh, I'll just say I learned a valuable lesson last night. Um, I learned that slip and slides are not for adults. <laughs> so I'm, I'm feeling it this morning. So if you notice, that's why. Um, let's pray together. Our Father, we are gathered here around your word, and we are asking for your blessing. Your word is far more than just ink on a page. And yet, if our hearts are not engaged with it, moved and changed by it, then your word will only be to us ink on a page. And so we pray that you would protect us from such a judgment and instead move and stir our hearts by your word to be changed, to reflect and show more of the wonder of our Savior. Help us to see Jesus and understand the purpose for which you have called us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've come this morning to the 133rd Psalm, which means we have only one week left in our series. We've been going through the Psalms of Ascent, which run from 120 to 134, and so we've got one week left after today. This Psalm is about unity, and I'm going to start off um, maybe in a strange way, uh, a way that may sound like I'm not pursuing unity. Uh, I'm going to start off by telling you something I don't like that Christians do. Uh, are you familiar with the illustration that people are supposed to be like mirrors, where God is the sun and he shines down on you, and you're supposed to use your mirror to reflect his light, his glory, back onto the world around you. Are you familiar with that illustration? Okay. Uh, I don't like it. Um, I don't like it because the thought of God shining down on you and you holding your mirror to reflect a little glory here, a little there, a little there, maybe a little back up, um, uh, there's something sadly missing from it. Um, if you're holding a mirror to reflect uh, back out, you're actually hiding yourself. Um, a lot of Christians pursue the glory of God, which we value and love and treasure. We know what the catechism tells us, uh, that our chief end is to glorify God. We talk about this, but we often pursue glorifying God in kind of a pagan way. We want something to actually be in front of us so that people can't see us. We have this kind of, don't look at me, I'm hideous approach to Christian life and to uh, honoring and glorifying God. We can hide behind the glory of God because we are afraid of what it means for God to glorify us. If God glorifies you, he is not making you more valuable than him. He is making you like him. He's making you shine like him. If you think of Moses, Moses went up on the mountain to meet with God, and what happened? He did not just reflect back the glory of God. He absorbed it. His skin absorbed it, and it began then to radiate back out from him. So a better picture that I've used before you may have heard it from me, is think of a sunburn. 
I think a sunburn is a more accurate picture of how this works. When you're out in the sun too long, what happens to you? Your skin soaks in the sun's rays and it begins to do what the sun does. It burns. Your skin changes colors. It can peel off of you. It can bubble up on you. And you can even feel the heat coming off of your body. You've absorbed it. And then it radiates back out from you. If you went to the beach and laid under a giant mirror, you would reflect the sun's rays, or the the sun's rays would be reflected back away from you, but you would not absorb them. You would not radiate them back out. And that is not the way God wants us to approach him. We are to receive and absorb and then radiate back out what he pours in. God did not save people to hide who they are behind a mirror. He saved us to redeem who we are so that our life can shine and radiate genuine godliness back out. And if I can sum up godliness in one word, it's this, love. Love is what's to be radiated back out from us, not just reflected, but something that we've absorbed from him and then comes back out naturally through us. It's become a part of us. Now, why am I going into all this? Because in this psalm, we come to see God's saving plan for the world. Now, we know, we know that Jesus is how God saved the world. Amen? Hallelujah. What we don't seem to know is how the blessing of Jesus, how the blessing of salvation is diffused out into the world. And you may say, well, of course we do. We know how the blessing is sent out into the world. It's called evangelism. Okay. But if your evangelism is too narrow or not motivated as our psalm instructs, you're doing it wrong. Here's the point. Here's what I'm getting at for this morning. This is your take home. Christian unity saves the world. Christian unity saves the world because it is a diffusion of Christ's salvation. That means that the culture of your home, the culture of this church, will reveal salvation or it will conceal salvation. The way you live with your brothers and sisters will either reveal the blessing of true life or it will conceal that blessing. In the beginning, Adam walked with God. There was unity. And since the fall in Genesis 3, God promised to reestablish that unity. The unity was broken and God has promised to reestablish it, to restore the fellowship between God and man. And when that fellowship is restored, what is the impact? Well, it is renewed unity between God and man, and it is also unity between man and man. Christian unity is the evidence of Christ's saving work, and it is a diffusion of his saving work. Think of it, um, if you have a diffuser in your home, I imagine a lot of you do, um, You use a diffuser to spread aromas throughout your house. So in the areas of your home that don't smell like lemon or thieves oil or lavender or peppermint or something like that, um, you put that in the diffuser and then it sends it out. It creates this aroma in your house. Christian unity is just like that. It is a diffusion of salvation. It brings the aroma of life to the world. Christian unity is a display and diffusion of the saving love of God. Now, what is love? We find out in 1 John 4.10, it says this, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. True love is found in God, and it looks like laying your life down for your enemies. That's what God did for us. We were his enemies, and he gave himself to unite us for him, or to unite us to him. 
If we don't understand his love, we cannot walk in unity and true love with one another because God is love. And if we don't have the love of God within us, we cannot give it away. You can't give away what you don't have. So if someone came into our church and, and made the comment, you know, boy, you all really love each other. There's such unity here, which, praise God, has happened. Um, if somebody says that to you, I hope your answer is to say, well, that's how the gospel works. It gives me love for people who were once strangers. It binds me to people who I otherwise would have never known. There are people in our church who love little babies and children who aren't theirs. There are people who give away their goods to one another, who give their money to each other. I watch our people care for the sick. I counsel people who want their sin to die so that they can love better, so that they can love their spouse better. People who aren't holding on to their anger or bitterness as though they feel like it's justified. They are confessing it. They're not interested in protecting themselves. They're exposing themselves because they want to be able to love others the way God loves. We have a wonderful church. There is great unity here, but there is also disunity. That's because we're people. We're sinners. And if Christian unity saves the world, if it is a, a, a diffusing of the blessing of God, we need to address the foul odor that is mixed in, the odor of disunity. Christian unity is a sweet aroma. Disunity is a foul stench that needs to be addressed. So with that, let's actually get into our psalm. If you notice uh, the heading, it says, A Song of Ascents of David. Now often we don't read the headings, but the headings will tell you something. David wrote this song. We don't know when in his life he wrote it, but if we think on David's life, we can really come to appreciate why David would be compelled to write a song about brotherhood. It makes great, a great deal of sense that David would value and yearn for unity. David was the great king of Israel, and yet he had two sons who tried to take the throne from him, Absalom and Adonijah. Prior to Absalom's attempt at the throne, Absalom also murdered another son of David, Amnon. Before that, Amnon had defiled his sister, Tamar. So David knows about disunity in his house. David himself committed a great sin against his brother, his fellow Israelite, Uriah. He committed adultery with his wife, and then he had Uriah killed to cover it up. And then before all of that, if you remember, David was a servant to King Saul, and he served faithfully, and yet Saul sought to kill David. The history of David's house is full of disunity. It is full of broken fellowship. If you think bigger than that, uh, pr prior to David, the history of Israel, Israel came out of Egypt and immediately started grumbling against Moses. They watched what Moses did for them, broke fellowship, grumbled against him. Israel entered Egypt because Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. They hated their brother. Before that, Cain murdered Abel. Right? That takes us all the way back to Genesis 4, which is only preceded by the break in fellowship between God and man in Genesis 3. So the history of God's people has been one of disunity. And if you fast forward just one or two generations from David, you get his son Solomon, who's also king. So the kingdom lasts essentially two generations, David to Solomon, and after Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam succeeds him. But Rehoboam is a fool who does not love his brothers. And he acts like Pharaoh and increases the burden on Israel. And so Jeroboam in the north, 
he's crowned king. He's king of Israel. Rehoboam is king of Judah in the south. The kingdom is divided. That united kingdom lasted all of two generations, and that was it. So it makes sense, seeing that this is the pattern of David, the pattern of Israel, the pattern of God's people, that he would feel compelled to write a song about goodness and brotherhood. This, or the goodness of brotherhood, I should say. Um, this song opens up with the word behold. Behold. Imagine, if you will, arriving at the temple in Jerusalem, okay? So um, this series, Journey to Jerusalem, these songs were songs that would be sung or chanted on the way uh, to Jerusalem by pilgrims approaching the temple. And so imagine you're one of them. You've come on a long journey. You finally get to Jerusalem, and the temple is up ahead of you, and you are walking up the stairs, continuing to chant your psalms. But as you do, you start to behold things, you behold other people on the steps with you. Perhaps you behold someone from another tribe. You behold someone who maybe looks at you a little funny. Someone who maybe dresses a little bit differently than you do. You behold people who you have disagreed with in the past. Maybe it's not another tribe, maybe it's your tribe. Maybe it's your neighbor somebody you have a personal beef with who you didn't realize was just a little bit behind you in the caravan and now suddenly they're right there with you. And the closer you get to the temple, the closer you get to each other. And suddenly you notice that this person is maybe on the same step as you are. Maybe for our purposes, they came in the same car as you did. And you've come to worship, and you have disunity right around you. What do you do? What should be the thing going on in your heart and your mind? What song should you be singing in your head? Well, it's this one. It's Psalm 133. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Behold my brothers. It is like the oil of sanctification. Our brotherhood is like the perfume of heaven. It is like the water of life, and it is where God makes his blessing flow. We often sing, do we not? Come thou fount of every blessing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Well, this psalm says there is a specific blessing that flows through unity. Is that the blessing that we are pursuing? Are we yearning for the blessing of unity? Or are we comfortable with a little gossip, a little slander here and there? Are we comfortable finger-pointing, blaming others? Are we comfortable just sweeping things under the rug, not actually addressing them? When somebody apologizes to you, do you go, uh-huh, right, and hold on to your bitterness? Are we comfortable bashing our spouses or our children or our friends? Do we get together, perhaps, in our discipleship groups to commiserate instead of actually addressing sin? I hope that you want the blessing that this psalm says is available in Christian unity. It's a remarkable blessing. It is the blessing of life. So behold, it says. Now this is a little bit of a contrast to what we get in Psalm 132, which began with the word remember. And in Psalm 132, it was a cry to God to remember. Remember, O Lord. And yet here we get... Behold, so it's a call to everybody. Behold how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Now I wonder, have you ever had the experience, uh, you get home, uh, whether from school or work or whatever, uh, and your, uh, maybe it's your spouse, or if you were younger, maybe it was uh, one of your, uh, your parents, 
or perhaps if you have kids, it's one of your kids, but you get home and you walk through the door and immediately that person says, behold, Katie's here. Behold, Braden's here. Behold, mom is home. Behold, dad is home, right? This never happened to me either. <laughs> but wouldn't it be nice? And that sound maybe a little interesting, but, uh, but what a way to walk in, right? How good and pleasant would that be? And instead, we're probably more used to something like, oh, hey, can you help me? Right? Uh, will you change the diaper? Uh, will, will you cut those vegetables? Did you remember to pick up the dry cleaning? Right? Did you stop by the grocery store like I asked you? My wife has never done that. Don't get the wrong idea. <laughs> but it says, behold, how good and pleasant it is. Do goodness and pleasure flow from your house? Is that what flows from your friendships? I want to make two notes here that I think are worth mentioning. Um, the first is on those two words, good and pleasant. The root of the word pleasant, same root as the word pleasure. Okay, if something is pleasant, it is pleasing, it is pleasurable. And we often think that these two terms, goodness and pleasure, are incompatible. Pleasure for many of us often relates actually to sin, something that's not good. And goodness usually relates to God. So we are, we're used to things being good and we have a frame of reference for things being pleasurable. But it should be striking to us that the psalm says that brotherhood is good and it is pleasurable. If you are a guy, I bet you have never had a time out with your dudes and you get home and somebody says, how was it? You don't say, oh, it was really pleasurable. <laughs> uh, you might say, it was good. Right? We're not used to things being good and pleasurable. But if you've experienced this type of Christian unity, this type of brotherhood, if you've been impacted by it, or really, I guess, even if you haven't, listen to the psalm. It's saying, behold. It's saying, come and gape at the wonder of unity. It's something extraordinary. In a world like ours, where we don't have visionaries, we have divisionaries. We employ the politics of division. We cancel people. We divide from them because of their tweets. In a world where everyone actually wants to be divided so that we can be completely autonomous, unity becomes something extraordinary, something worthy of beholding. If a disciple of the secular culture comes into our church, they should behold something amazing. They should behold a bunch of people operating together as one, worshiping the God who has bound them to himself. Christian worship is like a wedding. God has given himself to us, and we come together and we give ourselves to him, and we listen to him. We love what he has to say. We love to hear his vows, his promises. We delight in each other. And we receive the richest of blessings in being united to Christ. And the Bible says, if you can believe this, the Bible says that we receive the richest of blessings in Christ. We receive the rich inheritance. And yet God also says he receives a rich inheritance in us. Can you believe that? If you are married or if you're on your way to marriage or hope to be married someday, um, think about this. I hope that you either do or will look at your spouse regularly and wonder, how did I end up with you? How could God bless me like this? I hope you think that about each other. I hope you think that about Jesus. How could God unite himself to me of all people? I know what I am. And yet still, he called me to himself. And how even more can he think of me as a rich inheritance? That's mind-boggling. And it is the foundation of Christian unity. We want to be united to what we love. 
God loves us. And we have learned to love him. And then we learn to love one another. So, first note, goodness and pleasantness, pleasure. They are both wrapped up in unity. The second note is on the word brotherhood. In other generations, we probably wouldn't have had to make a comment on this, but that's okay. We live in our generation, and we can't do anything about that. In a generation like ours, where people have a tendency to get upset because the Bible uses the masculine term brother instead of brother and sister, I want to tell you it's okay. It's okay for the Bible to say brother. There is nothing wrong with God calling you a son or God calling us to have brotherhood because the Bible also uses other pictures to describe us. It can call women sons and it can call men a bride. It's a little bit strange sometimes to think about, but God is communicating something through the images. The Bible also talks about us as children and as adults, as priests and as kings. So don't be discouraged or upset, bothered by the fact that it says brother. I would actually say this is an encouragement. It's wonderful because uh, in each of these images, God is telling us something more about the depth of relationship that we have with him. It is not sufficient to characterize our relationship to God as one thing. It can't be captured that simply. Our relationship with God expands far beyond any one thing. So, don't be bothered by the language of brothers or sons or brides. You don't need to be defensive about it. You need to actually delight in what God is telling you through it. So brotherhood does not exclude you ladies, okay? It is about the people of God. So, moving on. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. How many of you think, you know what would be really pleasurable? I just want like to douse myself in oil. And you're laughing because nobody thinks that. It's a strange image, right? Just some dude standing over you with a jug of oil just drenching you in it. It doesn't sound like a blessing to me. It sounds like a high school prank. You know, when somebody's sitting on the toilet and you go and you uh, douse the, the toilet paper. So it's like, ha you know. So imagine a bunch of oil. Good luck wiping now. Um, right? It doesn't sound real nice. But the Bible says this is a blessing. And it's actually maybe even a little bit weirder than it is here. Because the... Um, the ESV says it's running down on the collar. The Hebrew, um, it's, it's a reference to an end or an opening. So it could be this one, but it could also be down here at the hem of the robe. So maybe actually oil just running all the way down you. So, bit, bit strange. I immediately, when I think about that image, I think, how much, uh, how much dish soap would I need to actually get all of that off of me? But I wonder if perhaps that's the point, if that's what God's getting at. Um, the oil that's referenced here is unique. God makes a big deal about it. Um, in Exodus uh, chapter 30, he talks about this oil. And I'm going to read this to you. It's Exodus chapter 30, starting in verse 22. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is 250, and 250 of aromatic cane, and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hen of olive oil. And you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil, blended as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting, and the ark of the testimony, and the table, and all its utensils and the lampstand and its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the basin and its stand. You shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. And you shall say to the people of Israel, this shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person, and you shall make no other like it in composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it or whoever puts any of it on an outsider shall be cut off from his people. That's intense. 
It's a lot of oil, and it is used to make things holy. And you can't use it for anything else. So here God says, our unity is like an anointing oil used to consecrate things, used to make them holy. An oil that is capable of making anything that it touches holy. That is the potency of Christian unity. That is why I say it is like a diffusion because it is this oil, this oil of unity is the picture, that sanctifies, that makes holy the things that it touches. Just like your oil in your diffuser makes, you know, pleasing the areas that it gets to, this oil makes holy what it touches. It is a diffusion of blessing onto anything that it touches. And like the oil, it doesn't come off easily. It's sticky. Not only that, it's a perfume. It's, it's got all these spices in it to make it smell wonderful. What should we take from that? God's things don't stink. They are delightful. Christian unity is like the perfume of heaven. It is the scent of God's dwelling place. How do your houses smell? How do your marriages smell? How do your relationships smell? Are they covered with unity like a delicious oil or are they emitting some foul stench? Is Christ the aroma of your relationships? Is love, the love of Christ, what is diffused in your home or is it the stench of a Christless culture? Verse 3. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Now, Hermon uh, is not a person. Uh, Jason was probably read that better by saying Hermon, then we wouldn't think of it as a person. But it's a reference to mountains, uh, and it's mountains in northern Israel um, that stretch into Syria. Um, and it's, it's a cluster of mountains, uh, about 100 miles north of Jerusalem. And it's the highest point in Israel. And what happens there is uh, Israel's obviously, it's an arid climate, so there's not a whole lot of precipitation, but this high mountain catches the precipitation that is there. So uh, whether it's dew or rain or snow, it catches it on the mountain, and then it flows from the mountain, and the mountain is responsible for feeding the Jordan River. Um, it also is responsible for some other streams that flow down as well. But the, the picture that it's getting at is this uh, mountain that catches this precipitation is responsible for making life uh, abundant, making life flow, making, uh, the, uh, making the land fertile, right? It's responsible for crop growth. So David is saying this unity is like the dew, the water that sustains life, that allows for growth in Israel. And here I don't uh, just mean growth in Israel as the nation of Israel, okay? Because this is for us too. So Christian unity is what makes it possible for us to grow, for us to have life together, which means we need each other to grow. If there's no unity, it's like having no water. And without unity, churches die. God's people are scattered. The reason for this, the reason we must protect our unity is because it is what God has, it is where, I should say, God has commanded his blessing. Now, that's a strange way to speak, perhaps. He commanded a blessing. What does that mean? We might be um, used to the idea of God speaking a blessing, God uh, promising a blessing, God giving a blessing. But here it says he commanded a blessing. And the Hebrew is he summoned or ordered a blessing. So it's as though Christian unity is like a flowing stream, and uh, within that stream is a blessing. It flows, it's ordered right with it. They go together. So there is a blessing that flows that follows the order of unity, the order of brotherhood. When you experience the one, you experience the, the unity, the brotherhood, you experience also the blessing. You receive the second. And what is the blessing? It says, life forevermore. The blessing is eternal life. 
how does unity result in life forevermore? That may sound strange to us. That sounds nearly blasphemous. Like, like there's a different way of salvation. It's not what it's saying. And here's why it's not. How were you saved? If you think about that. How were you saved? How did you become a Christian? You were saved because Jesus paid the price for you and he brought you to himself. You were saved because you are united to Jesus. Unity with Jesus is how you are saved. When you did not know Jesus, you did not love Jesus. And still, he paid for you. Still, he brought you near. Still, he united you to himself. I remember once, um, this was some time back, um, one of our children was having a severe meltdown. Uh, would not stop screaming, thrashing, just hitting, kicking, wouldn't calm down. And so what I did was I, I, I picked up my child and we went to his room and I figured, you know, you just let him have his time in there. It didn't stop. Um, he continued to kick and scream and thrash about. And so what I decided to do was to pick him up and just hold him. And I didn't want to get hit, so I you know, kept his arms away from me. And uh, I had to essentially restrain him, which is a very weird thing to have to do. And I'm not necessarily saying that's a good practice, but it was what we had to do in the moment. Um, and he fought and he fought and he fought until eventually he realized, I can't fight anymore. I'm done fighting. And afterward, the most interesting thing happened. He immediately fell asleep. Like, went from kicking, screaming, thrashing, trying to hurt me, to immediately asleep. It was very strange. And when he woke up a little while later, he was a new kid. It was really, really wild. I was his enemy for a moment, and I still came near to him and just held him, even though he didn't want me. But something happened, and he stopped fighting, and he let me hold him, and then he just kind of gave himself up and fell asleep and then woke up, and it was, uh, it was wild. But that's what God God did for us. We were God's enemies. We kicked. We screamed. But God came near to us. He paid the price for us. And eventually, we stopped fighting. Eventually, we understood his love. We woke up as new people. We were awakened to new life. Um, your elders, and I imagine many of the people here, but uh, your elders believe in a doctrine called election. If you're not familiar with it, that's okay. Uh, it simply means that God chose us and that he loved us first. He paid the price for us and he got us. He came near to us in Jesus Christ and in his coming to us, he opened our eyes to see and understand his love and his grace. We were awakened to what true love is because God chose to come near to us. He awakened us to know him. Do you ever watch um, those military reunion videos where like the military parent has been gone for a long time and they get home, you see them and they're just clickbait. But, um, but it's because they're really sweet. And I watched one the other day and it was a, uh, a dad who's been gone. He shows up, his son is in a martial arts class. Some of you have probably seen it, but uh, in the martial arts class, they, uh, uh, the, the instructor is telling uh, the class that we want to um, focus not just on what we can see, but also on our other senses. And so he blindfolds this kid uh, and says, I want you to you know, hear my footsteps on the mat so you know where I'm at. Listen to see if you can tell where I am. Like, listen to my breathing, right? Uh, and so you see this kid, he's blindfolded, and every now and then he's going to try to throw a punch, right? Uh, and while he's blindfolded, pretty quickly the instructor steps off the mat and his dad comes in. And so his dad's now trying to kind of sparring with him, you know, like, I'm over here, I'm over here. Anyway, um, every now and then the kid, you know, throws a punch and his dad says something to him. Good job. There it is. Well done, sport. And after a few, the kid recognizes something is up. And so he gets his gloves off and he lifts up his 
uh, his mask, and he sees his dad, and in a moment just falls into his dad crying, and it's, it's sweet. Some of you are now also going to go look it up, um, but it's, it's such a sweet thing because it's a picture of, uh, of what union's supposed to look like, but it's a picture of violence turned to union. He's fighting, and suddenly he recognizes it's my dad, and I can't help but go to him and wrap my arms around him. We were God's enemies, and we did fight against him. And yet he brought us near, and he opened our eyes, and he united us to himself. So our unity with God is indeed how we are saved. The means of our salvation is the cross. It is the death and resurrection of Christ. The instrument is, uh, that God uses to unite us is faith. By faith we are united to God. God did this for us, and he opened our eyes to understand it. And then when we believe it, we are forever united to Jesus because of it. So the blessing of unity is the blessing of eternal life. It is the blessing of salvation. That does not mean, to clarify, it does not mean that you are saved because you feel united to your spouse because you're experiencing uh, Christian uh, unity. It means that you can be united to your spouse because you are saved. Your uh, unity with one another is not how you're saved. Unity with Christ is how you are saved, but unity with one another is how you experience the blessing of salvation. You can taste and smell and experience the goodness of Christ's saving work when you walk in unity with your brothers. When a man and his wife are united, they are a picture of this. They are a picture of salvation. Christ united to his church. When we walk together in unity, it is like holiness being diffused all over the place. If the oil companies don't have an oil called unity, they should. Um, not that it would provide it. I don't believe that. So this all sounds very nice, but let's get practical for a moment. Um, you may be able to diffuse lemon oil in your house to make it smell nice, but we need to be concerned with also the spiritual smell. Lemon does not cover up spiritual odor. So are you the kind of person who waits in the car outside your house after work for as long as possible before going in because you're afraid of what odorous things you might encounter when you walk in the door? Do you constantly leave the TV on or your headphones in your ears because you need something to distract you from the spiritual state of your house? Do vices keep you from engaging in the spiritual cleanup that your marriage needs? Do you sit in the bathroom for 20 minutes on your phone instead of giving that time to your family? Is your discipleship group a time for commiserating in sin rather than dealing with sin? Are you perhaps afraid to join a discipleship group because you don't really want to be known that well by other people? Do we want the blessing or do we not? Do we believe that we will actually get to enjoy the blessing of eternal life by pursuing unity? Do we think that actually there is the taste of heaven that we can experience now by striving for fellowship with one another? Christian unity saves the world. Christian unity starts in your heart. It's a question of, are you united to Jesus? Do you understand his love? Do you understand that he laid his life down for you, his enemy, to make you his friend? How then can you, should you, model that love for your spouse when they're acting like your enemy? How can you model that love for your children when they make you want to pull your hair out? A few weeks ago, I was so frustrated with one of our kids. Um, I had just been urinated on, and um, I made this sound. It wasn't even a word, just a sound. And I didn't think it was very loud, but apparently it was, because Whitley came around the corner wondering what had just happened. Uh, 
and uh, she, she saw that I was really frustrated. And so my, um, I, I didn't have a word to express my frustration. All I had was a grunt, and that was the sound that was produced. And it was a very clear indication that I, <laughs> I was not united to my child in that moment. What do you do when all you have are grunts? You remember Jesus who, while being tortured, asked God to forgive the men torturing him because they didn't understand what they were doing. Your children do not understand all the things that you want them to understand, but their understanding is also not what's most valuable to them. What does Paul say? Paul says, if I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, but have not love, I am nothing. Love covers a multitude of sins. Is love the aroma of your house? So unity starts in your heart. It starts with Jesus and then immediately diffuses into your home. Does your unity with Jesus produce a diffusion of spiritual pleasantness? Is your home sanctified with unity so that when people come in, they can sense the warmth and the love within your house? Or is it cold and stale? What about the church? Is there anyone you're currently out of sorts with? Are there sins that you need to confess to somebody else? Have you wronged your brother or your sister? Are you walking in disunity because of your pride or your envy? If you do, we need to address it. I'll just say this. If, if you do have broken fellowship with your brother or sister, um, some churches will tell you, don't come to the communion table when it's time. I'm not going to tell you that. I'm going to say, um, don't come to the communion table unless you actually intend to commune with the body. So uh, come to the table if what you're after is actually uh, doing something about the disunity Come to the table, receive the strength of, that the heavenly meal provides so that you can do something about your broken unity. Do not take the sign of unity if you have no plans on pursuing unity. That's a maybe more simple way to say it. There's nothing more destructive than, uh, a, than a broken or a disunified marriage. It ruins families, it ruins nations. Uh, we see that in the history of Israel. And this is exponentially true for the church. A church walking in disunity is a bride not walking in fellowship with her husband. If the church is not walking in fellowship with Christ, there is nothing more destructive to a people and a culture. Our culture is what it is in the U.S. because the church has not been walking with Christ. And what is the downstream result of that? Those people hate each other. People shoot each other. They shoot up grocery stores and they shoot up churches. If the church isn't walking with Jesus, it will not be diffusing anything but the same foul odor that exists without, outside the church. We will not be diffusing the blessing of Jesus. Like Israel, we get very comfortable and then we forget God and we forget what he wants. If we are not walking with Jesus, if we're not following him, it's because we're not united to him and we don't understand his love. The blessing of life forevermore is, uh, is the product of, of unity. It is a blessing that flows with unity. There God has commanded his blessing. So are we walking in that blessing? Are we pursuing that blessing? And I will say many of us are. Praise God. And if that's you, give thanks for it. Cultivate that blessing. Share it. Sanctify your home. Sanctify this place by walking in unity with your brothers and sisters. But if the love of Jesus is not the perfume of your life the way you'd like it to be, then my encouragement to you is to look to Jesus. There is nothing more destructive than disunity, but there is also nothing so powerful as unity. Christian unity saves the world. Christ came to win the world, to be united to it, to purchase it, and God accepted his purchase. God gave him the, uh, the deed, so to speak, to the world. Jesus is the owner of the world. He is the king of the world, and he will have it. He bought it with his blood. He died 
to take the place of ruined sinners so that they could be raised to new life, raised to life united to the risen Jesus. The love of God has been poured out on us in Jesus Christ. No, you don't deserve it, but yes, it is for you. So come to Jesus. Is your marriage broken? Come to Jesus. Is your relationship suffering with your parents or your kids? Come to Jesus. Is your brotherhood broken with your fellow church member, your brother or sister? Come to Jesus. Put Jesus to the test. See if he is faithful to his promise. Pursue Christian unity and see if he doesn't bless it. Christian unity will save the world. Walk in unity and see your household saved. Walk in unity and see your church saved. Walk in unity and behold what the salvation of the world will be. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we want to walk the way Christ walked. We want to see the blessing that flows with following Christ, being united to Christ, flow also from us in our homes and in our church. We want to see it in our city. We pray that our unity with Jesus will indeed be a diffusion in our lives of, of your grace, a diffusion of salvation where it gets on us like an oil and it is sticky and we cannot remove it and it is uh, it smells wonderful and beautiful and it is something we desire to uh, get more of your word says that it's not to be used for ordinary people and yet the psalm tells us here that this is exactly what it's like it's it's like oil running down on us your special oil to make things holy and so I pray that you would indeed pour out the goodness of unity on us. Help us to walk in our union with Christ so that we can walk in union together and give us strength to repair areas where we are walking in disunity. We pray this in Jesus' name.